More than a week ago in Minneapolis, George Floyd, an unarmed black man in police custody, was killed while pinned beneath the knee of officer Derek Chauvin for almost nine minutes. This has sparked protests nationally of people fed up with police violence. I'm Sarah Bencourt, host of the podcast. As guests, we have Rep. Russell Holmes, who represents Mattapan, parts of Dorchester and Hyde Park. We're also joined by Shagun Iduwu, the Executive Director of the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having us. So my first question to both of you is, is a simple one. How are you as Black men doing as you see all of this unfold? Shagan, do you want to go first? Sure. I mean, I, I know that um, uh, the last few weeks, um, because of course this didn't start with, uh, with George Floyd, uh, have been uh, difficult to process on my end. Uh, and you know, to be honest, work has kind of kept me busy enough that I've been able to ignore it. Uh, so I haven't been able to come up with a good enough answer to that question. So the only thing that, that I felt uh, has been rage, that it's happened again, and that, you know, the first time I'm meeting someone that could be uh, a brother of mine or a long-term friend uh, is at the moment of their death because someone happened to record it. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm having these feelings of, uh, you know, this is happening all over again uh, and just continuing to be in this, uh, uh, this state of, of rage, uh, but with an eye toward uh, uh, making sure that we, that this is not just a moment that we can let pass by, but, uh, instituting systemic change so that I don't have to be out on the street with everyone else uh, protesting this kind of behavior again. And Rep Holmes, what are your thoughts? So my thoughts are uh, very similar, very angry. They really go back for me, back to my childhood, which is the thought of, and I made mention of this in the press conference the other day, of when I became what I call woke. Um, I grew up in a small town that was an all-black town and did not realize uh, until um, Roots came out that black people didn't run the world um, because obviously my mayor, my teachers, everyone I had come into contact really as, as a young, young man, as a little boy, was essentially black. I did see white people when I would go to the store outside of my town or come to Boston to visit my dad, but it wasn't until then that I realized that um, we didn't run the world. And I go back there because of the fact Roots is the time that I got that lesson from my mom and that sight of black people watching a white man essentially murder or kill another black man and all they did was feel helpless is exactly what I remember and recall, you know, when the whole story of Kuta Kente and all of the other folks from Alex Haley, when that was seared into my mind, just the helplessness. And I can tell you, I'm certainly not feeling helpless, but I'm going back to that question of my youth of what would I have done if I was born during that time? And um, that is, I think, the challenge that many of us as black people are asking ourselves many days. And so the anger and the determination to say that I'm gonna do what, I'm, what I can in my time and at this moment is the determination that I'm feeling after seeing that. Your comments make make me want to jump into another question that I had for later on, which was, have you, either of you, experienced instances of police force? I have my whole life. So I grew up in Mattapan. So 
the thought of having someone frisk me or question me or look at me um, even when I'm not doing anything um, that I felt was um, was inappropriate has been a a constant part of life. I go into a store, I do all the things that I think most people do in a normal life. So yes, and I can think of one incident in particular uh, when I was in college that I think threw off so many of my white friends where we were coming away from just uh, a club in Kenmore Square and we were walking back to our dorms along Commonwealth Avenue. And I can tell you there might have been maybe 15 of us, two of us were black, and then all of a sudden cars just surround us and they throw uh, the two of us, me and my roommate at the time, Chris, uh, to the ground and frisk us and want to verify our, our IDs. And my, if there were 15, whatever it was, 11, 12, 13, 15 white friends were just totally freaked out the rest of the night, just could not understand it. And Chris and I could just move on with our lives because this was something that was not unusual to us that they thought it was okay to do that because they say two black men robbed the store. And we're just, you know, saying, are you crazy? Two black men would rob a store and then come and be walking along Commonwealth Avenue with 11 white people. And you think that's the right people to go and frisk. So, yeah, so that that's as quick as I can say it. I know we're short on time. And and echoing, you know, what the, what the rep has said, um, we have our whole lives uh, to, to uh, as a, an example of, um, or, or to, to have a list of examples of dealings with uh, the police. You know, I mean, if I go back to uh, 2004, so all, all my friends and, and anyone I, I interact with knows that I pretty much just have one piece of clothing and that's a suit. And um, back in 2014, uh, participated in the protest uh, that uh, was, was uh, where folks came together to express outrage at the killing of Michael Brown. And uh, I wound up being arrested that night uh, simply for being on the front line and stand, literally standing there holding hands with, with the folks around me. Uh, and it was the first time I didn't have on a suit. And um, hearing what the state troopers uh, were saying about those of us on the front line and how they uh, dragged me over and a couple others over the line that, that they had set up um, and threw us on the ground and sat on top of us and arrested us uh, simply for standing there. And that, but that's just at a protest. I mean, I have countless stories here in Boston alone, uh, uh, either being followed uh, when driving, particularly when coming now to my home in Hyde Park, being pulled over for absolutely no reason. Um, you know, or even in my younger days in high school, just at the fact of officers asking what you're doing in a certain place, you know, things like that. And then even if I didn't have my own experiences, I have a a younger brother who's had uh, significant uh, uh, detrimental experiences with Boston police, many friends who have. Uh, and so, you know, for, for those, for us as, as black men and black people, it's not even just about the experiences that we go through, but also that of our friends and family and community uh, that traumatize us as well. So talking a little bit about protests and being at those protests, I'm not sure if either of, of you two have been part of the protests in the past few days, but there's a few aspects of the protests that have really come to light. First is that they tend to begin quite peaceful, and there's a small group of people at the very end who might be um, instigating something toward police, and then they tend to turn out with some arrests. Second is that there might be this shift 
um, you're starting to see police officers take a knee. What are your thoughts on all of that? Um, and are you seeing anything different here? Well, so uh, I'll say this. I mean, I was at the protest on Sunday and I was at the protest on Tuesday, uh, the one on Sunday organized by the three young black women uh, who were all from Boston, who were recent college graduates who decided that uh, we need to come together to express our frustration and protest, uh, not just what we saw in Minneapolis, but what we're seeing here in Boston and brought together thousands and thousands of people that marched to the state house. So I'll just say that I take issue with the framing of the question because, uh, or at least the line of um, people being at the march and instigating uh, some type of violence because what I have witnessed is the complete opposite, uh, which is, uh, and, and I particularly think about Tuesday's march organized by Monica Cannon Grant and Black Lives Matter Boston, uh, where uh, everything there was peaceful. Uh, in fact, on Tuesday specifically, it was probably one of the most affirming and uplifting protests I've ever been to. And you know, everyone was there in solidarity and out of love uh, and in understanding. Uh, and all of us, uh, you know, we were directed by Monica very sternly that uh, this this protest is now over and all of you need to go home uh, and we're going to do so peacefully and we're in the black community and and you're not going to rip anything up here up um, you know at Franklin Park and so all of us were dispersing peacefully and all of a sudden uh, there was a, a rush of police officers uh, to the crowd uh, for no apparent or explicit reason and this was uh, extremely antagonistic uh, you know, I myself was was uh, brushed aside and pushed aside by officers who were who descended uh, upon the crowd with batons and with their motorcycles and uh, their police cars for absolutely no reason. Uh, and so everyone who was leaving peacefully, who were meeting new people and who were, um, uh, again, expressing this affirmation and and just joy for being in the space uh, automatically. Uh, became uh, enraged. And, and, and so for us, uh, it was the police who were instigating uh, something there and, um, and just stood there almost waiting and baiting people to, um, to respond in kind. So, but, you know, I would say, you know, th these protests, uh, yes, have been peaceful, but uh, I know for myself and uh, even our organization, uh, the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts, are not in any way condemning the way that Black people have been responding uh, you know, it's Malcolm X that says, uh, you know, I, I don't think that when a man is being criminally treated, that a criminal has the right to tell that person the tactics uh, that they use to get that criminal off their back. Uh, and so, you know, we're not going to tell an oppressed people uh, that they are expressing their frustration at their oppression in, in an incorrect way uh, or, or that they're doing it in a correct way because there is no such thing. So, um, you know, all of these have been done not only in solidarity and out of love and in peace. But when we've seen crowds react, my experience uh, has been that it's been because of antagonization by the police uh, and not the other way around. My thought on it is um, I, I agree with Shagan that I don't tell folks how to act, but I'm going to simply say that uh, all of the uh, actions that seem to get the press is because as the sheriff mentioned just two days ago, if it bleeds, it leads. That is the way the press uh, operates. And so it certainly detracts from the message uh, when we do it. And it certainly, from my perspective, allows a crazy man at 1600 uh, Pennsylvania Avenue to have his whole law and order mantra 
and have a reason for why he believes he should go and pull out the military and the like. And so um, there's always been this trying to have this balance between Malcolm and Martin and the nonviolence versus the Stokely Carmichael's and, and others. Uh, and so we certainly are not going to, I'm certainly not going to be the one in this generation to to tell either side of that conversation what they should or should not do. But we have to remind ourselves that there is a message we're trying to get to, and that message is we are de making demands, um, and those demands we actually want to see follow through on and not give the other side the opportunity to use it to their advantage. If I could, um, I just want to add a, a quick thing. I mean, I, you know, and I agree with the rep in, in what he said, uh, especially in echoing what Sheriff Tompkins said the other day about uh, how the media portrays this. So I think a lot of this, too, is not really about the actions of the protesters. Uh, the, the onus uh, and the responsibility falls on uh, members of the press and how they are uh, uh, explaining uh, what's going on. Um, you know, again, you know, I, I think it, it when we when we are telling people that they need to be as peaceful as possible. We are accepting uh, that the way that we are talked about in the press is legitimate. And, you know, again, referring to Malcolm and not to be Malcolm X heavy, but, you know, one thing he cautions against even back in the 60s is that you ought to be careful because the press will have, a, have you loving your oppressor and hating the person responding to the oppression. And so I, I, I do wonder, and I know this, this is not about asking you questions, Sarah, but, uh, you know, I wonder how much of this is the responsibility of the press themselves on how they're um, covering this as opposed to putting the responsibility on black people to behave themselves according to white standards so that uh, we're taken seriously. Because when we have done this peacefully, it's not covered. And But when people respond violently, yes, they cover that part, but they also uh, speak of the issues and we get to the point that we're at today. So as a public policy publication, we weren't actually out at those protests, but it's something we noted, especially in Brockton, was that the media, particularly the TV media, wasn't there for the peaceful part of the protest and was only there for the latter part of the protest. But something I want to get to is why people are out protesting and what exactly people want to see change about this unfettered lack of accountability from police departments, the justice system, the state legislature, et cetera. What do you think people want specifically? Certainly a demand I've been putting out for quite some time, um, particularly um, Jamal Crawford, myself, Professor Goldman. We had an event in 2015 out at Tremere Rice, uh, a piece of legislation called POST, Police Officer Standards and Trainings, where we demand that if you become licensed or certified, we, we talk and brag as a state about how great our, our police officers are trained here in the Commonwealth. If they're so great, then they should be able to be certified and be able to, most important to, importantly to us, be decertified if they do something outside of what would be the normal or what would be the standards. And we're only just a, a few, uh, there's a handful of states just in this country that have not done this. And tens of thousands of people have been decertified by other states that they cannot move, move from one police department to another, can't move from one state to another, and certainly cannot, like in the Tamir Rice case, case, you cannot perform horribly in one police department and then show up in another police department and end up doing exactly what he did. And the other thing before I say Shigan, give opportunity to Shigan is um, I think we must 
also do civil service reform. We cannot continue to have a police department, state police department, I mentioned the other day, that is 95% male and 90% white. It, we must, and it bleeds through every one of our um, municipalities where you can have it so that the Boston Police, Boston Fire, EMS, all of these folks are hiring essentially pure white staff that is no, by no means reflective of our communities. And so when something goes down, someone has to actually use a GPS to get to Morton Street. They don't even know where it is. That is not who we should be hiring. We should be hiring people that when something goes down, I can drive. When someone says, hey, go to Morton and Blue, they know exactly where that is because that is their community, and that's where they go back home to. Shagan, you were part of the push to get body cams on police officers, right? It was, yeah. Um, you know, but I will say that a lot of us have been uh, rethinking, uh, you know, even the, um, uh, you know, whether or not we should continue pushing for body cams on police officers, particularly when uh, they keep finding excuses to not have them on. And, and by they, I mean police departments giving uh, uh, reason or, you know, putting policy in place uh, to, to prevent them being turned on. So, you know, when it comes to the protests that have been happening, we'll note that at least in Boston, None of the police officers, even though they have them on their chest, have not been recording uh, what's been going on. And it's because uh, they are working overtime. And the policy that uh, the Boston Police Department put in place is that when an officer is working overtime, they don't need to have their body camera on. Uh, and so all the videos that we've seen uh, of police misconduct, particularly uh, recently uh, at the Sunday night protest of a captain um, ripping up uh, uh, protesters sign uh, who was walking away uh, mm -hmm. you know that was that was done by uh, you know someone with their cell phone uh, and so we've had to rely on people just happening to be nearby to record these instances um, but at the same time you know so so that's the the why body cams were necessary and why we push for them but at the same time we know that um, you know to add to what uh, the representative said because he's absolutely right i mean first of all i want to say uh, that the community absolutely supports the move that the black and latino officials did this earlier this week uh, where they put out a 10-point plan uh, on the federal state and local level of what needs to be done uh, to hold police officers accountable and police departments uh, and especially the two that uh, the two points that the representative just raised, uh, establishing the post civil service exam, and I'll add on the local level, uh, establishing civilian review boards that actually have teeth, uh, where they're able to subpoena and and be able to reprimand an officer. Um, but you know, to be honest, the, where a lot of organizers and activists are right now is complete defunding of police departments, and instead uh, diverting those funds toward uh, the communities that are being impacted. Uh, by over-policing and police brutality. So there's a big push even on this Thursday uh, to influence the Boston City Council in their vote, uh, or at least their conversation on grants that are being given to the Boston Police Department, particularly the uh, Boston Regional Intelligence Center, or BRIC, uh, which you know is a surveillance department uh, out of the Boston Police that uh, surveils particularly Muslim communities and other parts of the black community, but there's a big push to get the council to deny this grant and to ensure that we're not giving more money to the police, but instead diverting these funds and, and investing in community programs. Shagan, I'd like to get back to de the defunding versus the reforming argument in a second, but I did want to ask the rep. I noticed it's been a couple of years since you ha held a panel, Rep Holmes, about the post-decertification program. 
And I'm wondering if it's gone anywhere, like what kind of conversations have you had to move that forward? And if, if it hasn't gone well, what can be different moving forward? So thank you for asking. So it has gone back and forth in the House and the Senate. Um, there's an enormous amount of influence by the police and their unions here inside the State House. But we have, the Black and Latino Caucus has pushed mightily against the governor to do everything he can administratively. And so the governor uh, earlier this year, and I participated with the auditor, the attorney general, many of the police uh, chiefs and Secretary uh, Turco to begin the process of what can be done administratively without legislation. And we are uh, closest to skipping, hey, let's do a commission about what should be done and let's just go let's go and just stand up the commission itself. And we, we had a meeting, uh, I think in February uh, before all of the COVID that we we're gonna have a deadline by now, by June, on what could be done administratively. And he had a team, that is Secretary Turco uh, had a team uh, that they were gonna go out and get it all done. So we're on the call with the governor today, the Black Latino Caucus at 2.45 to, to ask that direct question. Where are we? Your deadline was June. We know we've had nothing but crisis since we've met, but where are we on that other deadline of making sure we can resolve this and get a post commission set up as soon as possible? So we have had some positive movement on post. So there's this sort of idea of legislating the problem away but this idea of funding Shagrun, talk a little bit more about that is this like a stronger tactic you think that you know you've seen all these many many years of, of police sort of not getting accountability police officers getting swept under the rug is it time to just take away funding can you tell me about your work in that arena yeah well you know, and, and this is really the area of a lot of uh, the organizers who have been on the ground at organizations. I think of the Muslim Justice League. I think of Violence in Boston with Monica Cannon Grant. I think of Black Lives Matter Boston, who have been all who have been for years pushing for defunding the police, you know, youth against mass incarceration, et cetera. Um, you know, at the end of the day, legislation is important. And as uh, Rachel Rollins noted as well, elections matter, uh, not just for who's making the policy, but who's implementing it. But at the same time, budgets are statements of your values. And, uh, you, know, you know, as someone who, who uh, was raised in Boston, um, you know, of course, I think a lot about our budget here and the statements of support from our current mayor. But, you know, for a lot of people in the black community, uh, you know, we will know that these statements, these words are true uh, when we see the budget of the police department not going up every year, but rather going down, uh, not adding to, uh, not adding more police uh, to the force, but rather uh, a decrease in the number of police officers and instead diverting that money toward uh, community organizations and community programs that help to sustain the community. You know, part of the problem, you know, and, and again, I'm, I'm glad that a lot of the policy discussion has been on addressing um, uh, police departments you know, specifically, but, you know, this is really, a, should be a broader conversation because part of the problem in this country is that we use police departments, uh, you know, I'll use the term that you used earlier, uh, sweeping under the rug, social and economic issues that we just decide not to uh, actually deal with head on. And so part of, you know, I think of the case of Terrence Coleman in Boston, 
where one of the reasons why that ended in bloodshed is because we're calling police officers to deal with mental health situations as opposed to investing in more um, mental health counselors uh, and social workers to help in those situations. So, you know, again, uh, it's not, you know, yes, it's about taking the money, uh, you know, divest, invest, right, is the name of the, you know, a movement for black lives that, that's part of their policy platform, uh, divesting from police departments and investing in uh, uh, solutions that will work and you know because we cannot use the police department to continue to try to address social ills that we uh, decide to ignore. In terms of all of the things that people are protesting right now we're, we've seen these rallies happen before after the death of Freddie Gray, Trayvon Martin, Philando Castile, Sandra Bland. What makes this moment different and does the ongoing coronavirus pandemic influence that? Uh, well, you know, I'll just say absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, so COVID-19 really exposed for a lot of people who somehow were able to ignore uh, systemic racism for the last few years, even under the presidency of uh, President Obama, um, has, has really forced people to have to wake up. I mean, the fact that everyone is stuck in their homes, unless they're out protesting for us to not be in our homes, uh, you know, has to pay attention to what's going on. We have the time now. We, we don't have uh, anything distracting us, really. Uh, so we're forced to pay attention to this. And I'm talking really about white people uh, in the country because black people experience this every day. I will say that what COVID has done for us is we're now at a point of saying to ourselves, what do we have to lose in, in this uh, very justified rebellion that we see happening uh, across the country? Again, COVID is impacting our communities way more than it is uh, other communities, uh, not just in the health area of uh, killing, you know, the rates of infection and the rates of, the rates of death uh, in our community as a result of COVID-19, but also the economic conditions, uh, the fact that uh, we are considered essential workers but don't have access to adequate health care, or the fact that, uh, uh, you know, access to unemployment uh, to be able to uh, pay bills. I mean, it's, it's really exacerbating existing issues that were already at a tipping point before COVID-19 hit us. So COVID is really, on the one hand, enraging the Black community much more, uh, and to the point where we are acting in the way that we are when we're out on the streets, but also, I think, uh, waking a lot of white liberals and moderates and even some conservative folks up out of their very long and deep sleep uh, in ignoring the systemic issues that plague the country uh, since 1619. Rep. Holmes? Sure. So I, I say what I found what was very interesting with the, Chagan's comment was the question of what do we have to lose? That is exactly what this president asked the question of the black neighborhood. And um, we now have seen over th in the last three and a half years, the dramatic steps that can be taken aback from us for what we have to lose. And so when folks say uh, what, what is driving us this time? I certainly think what's driving us is um, the experience of the last three years, COVID, pandemic, loss of the stock market, loss of jobs, all the economic things that have happened. We, we're clear on what it is we have to lose. And um, not only are we clear, but we need to just make sure that we take this opportunity on all, in all cases to make sure we extend our voice because we know there's a, a substantial amount to lose. I want to take a look forward, but sometimes to do, sometimes to look forward, you have to look back. So about 50 years ago, there was a man named Franklin Lynch. He was a singer and he was shot at Boston City Hospital. 
by a Boston police officer, Walter Dugan, who was never charged. Now, 50 years later, you're seeing all of these instances continuously of police brutality, of systemic racism. What has changed and do you have any faith in change happening moving forward, coming out of this moment? Rep Holmes, what are your thoughts? So many things have changed. Um, so even when I think, uh, even in these moments, I never forget what we started from 50 years ago. I really quite am literally the first generation I feel to actually uh, see an, an, so much more of an equal opportunity. And so what my family and my grandfathers and fathers and moms all of them fought for in the 60s. I was born in 69. So to come in the 70s and just to see the difference in what they had just experienced 15, 20 years later, and now to see the opportunities now, the, the question isn't have things improved. They have substantially improved. They just haven't improved for all of us. And so you can't take and, and say, well, the folks who are in the best position in the black um, community have been able to be successful, that might be 10, 15% of us. The other 85% of us are still struggling. And that's not a struggle that you can solve within 50 years. I mean, you go through 350 years of oppression, and yes, lots of us have gotten successful. But you have to understand there is a long way to go for so many in, in our community that has been disadvantaged for generation after generation after generation. And so um, things have improved, but we still now today have to pull up so many folks who have not been able to take advantage as of yet. I would just add to that that um, you know the, the rep is right on the progress, uh, or excuse me, the the improvements that have happened, uh, you know, in the long history of this country. But uh, you know, the assumption of the question is that we were starting from the baseline of zero, working our way up from there. Uh, we were in the negatives, and we're not even at zero. And so to the rep's point about a large majority of our community uh, not being able to take advantage of uh, any of the successes or the opportunities that are available means that we are not at that baseline of zero. We're still trying to catch up to what, uh, what equality could actually look like or equity. Um, and so, yes, we've made improvements, but uh, we're coming from a long way back uh, in this long marathon. You know, as, as we think about the look forward, you know, all I you know, know is I, I operate uh, off of um, a piece of advice my grandfather gave me almost 10 years ago, which was, uh, you know, in all of our work to make improvements that we shouldn't confuse motion with progress. Uh, because if I were to push his rocking chair, it would move and make no progress. Uh, and so, you know, particularly for the city of Boston or, or just a liberal state like Massachusetts, uh, you know, we really encourage uh, our leadership, our white leadership, to uh, listen to and follow through with uh, the demands uh, and the uh, policy recommendations of our uh, elected officials and appointed officials, uh, because they are actually trying to move us to a position of progress where for a long time in the state, and particularly in the city, we have been very happy uh, with symbolic gestures and, and just uh, making motions on uh, systemic issues. And I know we're short on time, but I'm going to just hop on the words Shagan talked about. This is not about equality. And so the big challenge, I think, for whites is to understand the words equity versus equality. 
equity means that there are folks who have been left behind, and it does mean that you have to actually give more resources to some folks than you do to others. And getting your arms around that fact when we go through our budget, when we go through our legislation, when we go through all of the things that we do, some neighborhoods, some communities have more. And we're going to ask them to not take as much and give to the neighborhoods who have less. And that's just what equity means, to try to get us all to the same level of opportunity, of opportunity. It's all we're trying to get to, the same level of opportunity. And so the last, very last thing I want to ask is, it seems like this moment demands a real response for change. If you could have something in Massachusetts happen that could push forward a resolution in the next 90 days, let's say a look at three months short term, what would you want specifically? I specifically want to be standing behind this governor signing a post commission and specifically want to be standing behind the governor signing my civil service uh, reforms. I want those two things in law in the next 90 days. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll you know, I, I hope to be able to watch that happen as well. Um, but I'll say that uh, it's very difficult uh, on our end to boil it down to one or two things because we know that it's going to take a, a lot of um, a lot of different policy measures uh, as well as people putting up money. And, and I also want to just say that this isn't just a legislative thing. It, we also are demanding or we'll be putting out demands for what the corporate world can be doing and what our large large nonprofits can be doing as well, because this is not just a government issue. These are, um, uh, you know, when we think about economic justice and other things that are contributing to the violence of, uh, in our community, uh, it's not just uh, something that the legislature can take care of. It's, it's all of us working together. So, you know, um, I would say rather than me speaking on behalf of organizers and uh, activists on what one or two things they want to see happen, I would say that our elected and appointed officials, corporate leaders, nonprofit leaders ought to uh, uh, listen to these organizers and review all of their demands and, and actually follow through on them if we want to avoid uh, being in this uh, space ever again. And like I said on the press conference, I am not letting the judicial system off the hook. Chief Justice Gantz, his entire team owes us the report that tells us why our judicial system is racist. And I talked to the head of that program or emailed her again uh, two weeks ago that that report is, she says, just months away. And that certainly can get done in the next 90 days as well. Tell me why a black man is eight times more likely than a Hispanic, four times more likely than a white male to be prosecuted for the same crime. I want to know what our judicial system is doing about it. Rep. Holmes, I know we're supposed to be concluding, but can you summarize that in like one or two sentences just so listeners understand the point that you're making, like what that, what that review was supposed to be about? So the review was when Chief Justice Gantz came into office or was appointed, he said he, there was a study done that showed that Hispanics and Blacks are much more likely to be prosecuted in our judicial system, in Massachusetts, uh, than a white male. And so the task was to then uh, take it over to, the, to Harvard, and Harvard's been doing a study for years to understand what are the implicit biases and things happening in our judicial system that's making that happen, because it's the exact same crime. And so they owe us a report to then we can react to, to find out how would we then 
go and solve these problems in our system. And we've been waiting for that report for years. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you explaining that. Um, so this concludes the latest episode of the podcast. I'm Sarah Betancourt. We'd like to thank Rep. Russell Holmes and Shagun Itawu, the Executive Director of the Black Economic Council, for joining us. Thank you both. Have a wonderful day.